we can just go home now. <laughs> that was awesome. I do wonder, Dave, if you'd feel that way if the Steelers were in it. Because <laughs> I know I wouldn't, right? So we've been in the Gospel of Mark uh, for quite a while. Uh, so, in fact, uh, I think it's been about a year, right? Which is fantastic. It's really good that we all have been walking through this. And I'm glad that I've been able to be a part of the study of Mark just for the little while I've been here. Because it's given shape to, to my own uh, formation, spiritual formation, right? I mean, because what's the most important thing? What matters is the advance of the gospel in and through our lives. And that happens best through a constant remembrance of Jesus. And the gospel of Mark it definitely serves to do that. It puts Jesus constantly in front of us. Immediately, you'll hear that word, you know, immediately Jesus is in front of you as you read the gospel of Mark. And it gives shape and it helps the gospel to, pro- to progress in our lives and through our lives. And so I'm glad that we're still in this text and that I get to be a part of it. So this morning we're going to return again to Mark. We're in chapter 11, uh, verse 27 through chapter 12, verse 12. So if you will, let me read it for us. Before I do, let's pause for just a second. Uh, Give ourselves some mental space, a little second to just be quiet. And hopefully the Lord will use that to open up our heart and mind to allow us to hear what he has to say through a wretch like me. And Jesus and his disciples and the folks who were with him came again to Jerusalem. And as Jesus was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to Jesus, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven? Or for men? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then do you not believe him? But, we, but shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And Jesus began to speak to them then in parables. A man planted a vineyard to put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other a beloved son. And finally he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. 
And they were seeking to arrest Jesus, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told a parable against them. So they left him and went away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. God, we need your help all the time, but I need it this morning as you would somehow speak through me. I pray that the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Okay. Do you remember Westerns? Yes. I love Westerns. Uh, Unapologetically, if a Western is on, I'm watching it. I love them. Remember growing up when I was a kid watching uh, Marshall Dillon protecting the streets of Dodge. You remember Marshall Dillon, Matt Dillon, there he was out there with Festus and Kitty, right? Of course, Bonanza, grew up with Bonanza as well. You got, you got uh, Hoss, uh, Little Joe, right? The Cartwrights out there protecting, doing good for all, watching all those great Clint Eastwood movies and John Wayne movies. And then a few years ago when Kurt Russell and Val Kilmer came out with a classic tombstone story of Doc Holliday and Wyatt Earp, you remember that? I'm your Huckleberry. It's sad that I can quote most of that movie. Uh, My wife says it's sad that I can quote most of that movie, but I can with reckless abandon. I love it. But the greatest, the greatest cowboy of all time, the greatest cowboy of all time I have with me today is this guy right here. That's right. Woody. This is the rootinest, tootinest cowboy of all time. He's the greatest cowboy who ever lived, even without a gun in his holster, right? I love Toy Story. He made some great movies. Oh, what he did. This is not mine, by the way. This is my son. This belongs to Baker's. B- B- Baker. Some of you all met Baker back in December. He came with me. He's 21. He'll be 22 in a month. So I don't think he'll mind. He might, but I brought him with me. But Woody made some great movies. Toy Story 1, 2, 3, 75, all those in the franchise. Great movies. And I think at some point, Woody went into the ubiquitous saloon. You ever watched a a Western and there wasn't a saloon? What happened in the saloons? What happened? They They were the center of life, apparently, right? Every great Western has a saloon scene in it. There's lots of dancing and sinking and card play and tons of people in there. It's, a, it's where everyone gathered. It's, a, it's where life happened, right? And we all know what happened in those saloons. At some point in most Westerns, at some point in those Westerns, what happened? There'd been a, a fight. There's a dust-up, right? Something happens in the community. There's a dust-up. And then at some point in that show, in that movie, our hero comes walking into the saloon. And what happens? It goes as quiet as a church on Monday, right? Silence. And then the, the camera pans back, and our hero is standing there, and you see this crowd of villains approaching. And the tension in the room builds and builds, right? You could cut it with a butter knife. It's so thick, this tension is there, this moment. It's building. And all the bystanders start to back up because everybody knows that, that bullets can't discern between the innocent and the guilty, so they back up around the room, but they're listening intently to what's about to happen, what's about to unfold, and the next thing you see is this confrontation. I know it's probably really ridiculous to all the folks here and online, but when I read our text, that's where my mind goes. I see this confrontation like Jesus and his disciples and those who are with them 
walking back into Jerusalem and they get into the temple and the temple is the center of life, that life, the community, worship, unfortunately also the center of commerce. There's a lot of going on, a lot of noise, a lot of things going on. And Jesus and his disciples and those who are with them walk into the temple, go strolling back into Jerusalem, into the temple. And all of a sudden it goes as quiet as it can possibly be as people realize there's a showdown about to happen. There's a conflict on the horizon. There's something about to happen. But they're watching intently. Our text tells this in Mark 27, that Jesus and his disciples returned to Jerusalem. They've been there before because there was a dust-up the day before. Jesus and his disciples, I think Goody talked about it two weeks ago. David probably mentioned it last week. That Jesus and his disciples, when they enter in Jerusalem, they, they show up at the temple, this great place of of life and worship, and Jesus begins to toss these tables around, begins to drive out the money changers. Remember, that was part of the, of the life of the, of the temple. As David mentioned a few minutes ago, in the, in the court of the Gentiles, they, they set up a market in there because you had to trade your money and you also had to maybe buy a dove or whatever, and there was all this commerce happening. And Jesus went in and began to turn over tables and drive these people out. Because he said, you've turned this house of prayer, God's house of prayer, into a place, a den of robbers. And he drives them out. It probably happened the day before Jesus and his disciples in Mark eleven twenty seven sort of come back in. In our staff meeting this week, we talked about this text for a little bit. And, and someone, I'm not, I can't remember exactly who said it, among our, our staff, they said, they're probably still cleaning up from the day before. There's probably still bits of furniture or maybe feathers or something around and people are still picking things up from what Jesus has done the day before. And so all of a sudden, Jesus and his disciples and those who are with him start strolling back through the temple. And then Mark tells us that this group of men began to show up, a posse, as it were. They began to walk towards Jesus. And it's made up of chief priests and scribes and ruling elders, elders. And, and those folks are also a part of something we've read about earlier in Mark, the Sanhedrin, which usually made up of 71 men. I don't know that 71 men were here at this moment, but sure enough, there's a collection of the people who made up the Sanhedrin, these really important religious and political and business and community leaders showing up in this moment. Because they're the ones that have been responsible for cultivating, for leading for nurturing, for leading and guiding the spiritual life and political life and the community life of God's people. They're the ones that are actually responsible for the temple. They're the ones who are responsible for allowing commerce to commence in the temple. So you know they're not happy because Jesus had come in the day before and confronted them with the practices of how they were doing what they said they were going to do as the people who had that responsibility. And so now you have this moment, this tense moment. And they come to Jesus and they ask him this question. Just who do you think you are? By what right, by whose authority are you doing these things? It's a legitimate question, isn't it? It's a question that lots of people have asked for a long time. By what authority does Jesus have to speak into any of our lives? By what right? Whose authority does he have? And so they're asking this question, the Sanhedrin. By what authority do you do these things? 
That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? These things. Makes us wonder, what are they talking about? Well, certainly, of course, they have to be talking about the mess that's still being cleaned up. The, the overturn of tables in the temple itself. But it's probably more than that. It's probably more than that because a few weeks ago we heard about Jesus' triumphal entry. He didn't just walk into Jerusalem that day. In a few weeks we'll hear about it again. No, he rode in on, on a donkey. He rode in like a king with authority. In fact, um, people shouted, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus took all that on. He came in with this air of authority. In fact, came in like a king would come and went straight to the temple, the city center, the center of life, like a king would do. He came in with authority. But not just that. There were other times when Jesus actually forgave sins, something that only God has the authority to do. And then, of course, earlier in Mark chapter 1, we read that he went into the synagogue. He went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching and they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And so it's a legit question that they're asking. Maybe we should ask it. Jesus, where does your authority come from? You clearly carry yourself like someone with authority, not like the rest of us. So where does this come from? What's your deal? What authority are you doing these things? And you can tell from the way their question is phrased, you can tell by the way that there's a bunch of them, that they're not happy and they're making demands. But then in the tradition of the rabbis, Jesus does something amazing. He answers their question with a question. Have you ever done that to someone? Isn't it frustrating? So frustrating. When I was a kid, uh, my father was a general contractor, and so uh, even as a little kid, I would go on the job site sometime with my dad, and I was about 13, maybe 14, and I was working for my dad one summer, and there was a, they were building a school, and there was an inspector that came on the job, and he was a little overzealous in his job, and he would sort of pry into things, and so my father took me aside when he saw the man on the job site that day, and he said, if that man comes and asks you a question, you answer his question with a question. And so I said, well, what do you mean? He said, you just, uh, if he says, how old are you? You say, how old are you? And so my dad gave me this permission, right? How frustrating is that? Because it flips the switch. It turns the tables. It messes with folks. And so Jesus in this moment is a good rabbi, is asking them a question of their question. You tell me the answer to this question, and I'll tell you. Because if they can answer the question, they'll have their answer. They will have their answer. What right are they actually asking Jesus anyway? And so in verse 28, Jesus asks this question to them. And it is a, well, it's a packs a wallop. This is a woe Nelly question, right? Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And he's in essence asking them, do you think God was behind John's mission or not? Answer that question and you'll have your answer super loaded. Why would Jesus tie himself to John? Back when you all started this series, long before I arrived, in fact, um, it, it'll be a year ago, next Sunday, around next Sunday, that Goody preached the first, I think, few verses of Mark chapter 1. And in that, 
That's verse 9 through 11. And Mark 1, 9 through 11 is when Jesus is baptized by who? John the Baptist. That's not insignificant. He is baptized by John the Baptist in Mark chapter 1, 9 to 11. And in that moment, the heavens opened and the spirit descends on Jesus like a dove. And, and from heaven, often the word heaven is substituted for God in Mark. And in this moment, a voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son and whom I am well pleased. I'll make a note of the word beloved, sort of circle it. It comes up again. So Jesus is asking them, do you think God was behind John's mission or not? Was the baptism of John from God or from man? Because Jesus and John are tied together. In other words, the Sanhedrin is going to have to rethink all of this. They're going to have to rethink their position on John and his baptism and his work in order to understand who Jesus is. If John's baptism was from heaven, then Jesus' authority exceeds mere human authority and they can only be explained by the authority of God. Or, if they don't think so, then John's baptism was merely a human thing and Jesus has no authority at all. He's just some radical, some outlaw, somebody to be put down. Maybe a good moral teacher, maybe a guide, maybe something like that. It turns out that it's just that narrow. They can't answer. Actually, they won't answer. We can tell from the way that they ask this question that they have an answer. They have an opinion. Mark tells us that they talk amongst themselves, which is code in Mark, uh, for we want to evade Jesus's question. And so that's what they do. But he also tells us a couple of times in Mark that they're afraid. They're afraid of the people. They're the leaders of God's people, and they're afraid of them. They're leading out of fear. That's not a great way to lead, is it? Out of fear. They have this responsibility in this story, and they're fearful. So rather than sort of face their own convictions, they're afraid, and they won't speak up. These leaders of the Sanhedrin, they're responsible. But you know, and I know, and all the people there knew, and Jesus knew, that their fear was more important than their convictions and their answers. So they didn't say anything, but they had an opinion. I mean, that's the thing. If, if they could have just opened up a little bit and acknowledged the possibility, even the, the, the smallest part of faith, even the smallest part, Jesus would have met them there. Jesus makes that statement about, about the faith the size of a grain of mustard seed, this itty-bitty little thing. Jesus can work with that. And he steps in and enters in and meets people. Even with the smallest amount of faith, Jesus steps in there and meets that. He does it all the time. He does it for you. He does it for me. In fact, earlier in Mark's gospel, there was a father that came to Jesus and actually said, I believe, but help my unbelief. And Jesus met him in that. He would have met these members of the Sanhedrin there. But they had this, um, this calculated unbelief. And so Jesus responds to that by saying, you won't tell me, neither will I tell you. But the reality is, is that Jesus had been telling them all along. He'd been telling them in his baptism. And in great TikTok fashion, he tells them here. He tells them without telling them in this moment because he tells them a story. Most of the time when Jesus tells a story, it's to his disciples and it's for those who have ears to hear, they can hear. But not this time. No, he's pretty direct in the story. It's not, it's not as direct as maybe they wanted him to just come out and say it. So he tells them a story. 
In other words, Jesus is very much in control of his own destiny here. And he's establishing that he has an authority over them. And he tells them this story. There's no way that these, that these Sanhedrin folks would have missed what Jesus was saying. Because Jesus bases this entire story off a text we just read a few minutes ago, Isaiah 5. That's, the, that's where this parable come, comes from, Isaiah 5. He goes back to it. Except in Isaiah 5, the things are a little different, right? I mean, the vineyard is the same. If you read the Old Testament, you, you kind of see this connection between God's people, Israel, and a vineyard, sort of that, that image that runs through the Old Testament. And, and the vineyard is God's people, and God is the owner of the vineyard. He's the planter of the vineyard. He's the one who built the wine press. He's the one that all, all of that imagery that's in there, it's the same in Jesus's, Jesus's parable and, and Mark 12. It's the same, right? The vineyard still represents God's people. The owner of the vineyard is still God. It's still on there. In Isaiah, though, the vineyard itself is responsible because rather than bringing about a, a good fruit, they have wild grapes, or they have bad fruit. And so the vineyard is responsible for it. And so God says, I've got to do something here. And he does. And later on, he sends the Assyrians and there's this exile. And yet God brings his people back to himself and bring this great restoration. And so Jesus actually picks up on the imagery of, of Isaiah 5. And he tells the story and he adds a twist the way only Jesus could add a twist. Because see, all these people that are around, the chief priests, the scribes, uh, the, the elders, the, the Pharisees, all these folks had this responsibility. Jesus tells the story the, with the vineyard and God as the, as the owner of the vineyard, but he adds tenants who have a responsibility to cultivate. They have a responsibility to help the vineyard itself to flourish and bear grapefruit. But instead, the tenants have a, a, another plan. At some point, the tenants must have felt like that they deserved to own, perhaps, the vineyard itself. And so when the owner sends his servants, and in the Old Testament, this idea of servants was often associated with prophets, they decide to do what they did in the Old Testament as well, which is treat them shamefully, beat them, and kill some of them. It's interesting, though, that Jesus has just asked a question about John the Baptist, someone that people thought of as a prophet. All of this is connecting in the story. Those folks from the Sanhedrin would have to have been thick as a plank not to have picked up on what Jesus is saying. He's telling them, God has sent his prophets to you, and you didn't hear them. You treated them shamefully. And John the Baptist, well, he, uh, he lost his life for speaking truth to power, and you did nothing of it. And so now we hear in the story, of course, as Jesus continues to tell the story out of Isaiah, that the owner of the vineyard sent his beloved son. I told you that word was going to come up again. Beloved son. They'll respect my son. They'll respect my beloved. But they don't, do they? No, in the story, they seize the son, seeing he is the heir, and they kill him. And they, and they add to that by actually adding one, level, one other level of indignity to him, and they throw him out of the vineyard. I was reading some, some time recently about something about Paradise Lost, that John Milton epic. And there was a question that popped up from one person that I was reading that said, what is the sum total of humanity, human history, if not the attempt to rid the universe of God? And maybe perhaps that's what's happening here. That these tenants, maybe these 
members of the Sanhedrin were actually trying to push God out of the equation altogether. At any rate, the Sanhedrin would not have missed out on Jesus' meaning at all as the tenants, as those who were held responsible for cultivating the vineyard and helping it to flourish and grow. It sort of connects with this notion to whom much is given, much is required. In some ways, this parable speaks to this notion of, of a warning to those who would, who would aspire to serve and lead God's people, that there's a responsibility to it. And so those tenants those who were called to care for the vineyard have neglected the authority of those that God has sent and now even his very beloved son. So tucked within this, this, this parable is this powerful message of exactly who Jesus is and by what authority he's acting. He is God's agent, God's beloved son, come to do this work. And to seal the deal even further so that even these, uh, these knob-headed Sanhedrin guys, that even they could get it, he says to them from Psalm 118. Have you not read this scripture, Jesus said? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, which means, of course, this keystone of everything. Even as they are rejecting him, that he will become the keystone, the thing that holds everything together, which is why it's so important that as a church, we have this constant remembrance of who Jesus is because the gospel is not going to progress without that. That's the linchpin, the keystone, the cornerstone to everything that we're about. And as soon as we take our eyes off that towards anything else, we have a tendency to slip down other places. That's the linchpin, the cornerstone. And this was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. I have a good friend I've mentioned before, Roger Veith. He loves the word marvelous. He says it all the time. Taught me just how amazing that word is, marvelous. This is marvelous in our eyes, right, what Jesus has done. I love this. Jesus ends this parable by telling them that even as they reject him, now he's going to become the central figure of all. The turning point of all history rests right there. But then Mark adds this other detail. It's an important one. In verse 12, he says, And they were seeking to arrest him, but they feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. No kidding. So they left him and went away. Some theologians believe that this is the moment, this is the story that seals the deal, seals Jesus' fate with the Sanhedrin. This is the end. This is the, they, can't, they can't go back from this. And so basically, what's ironic in all this is that when the religious leaders hear this parable and recognize their place in it, they don't repent but actually fulfill exactly what the parable said they would do. Because then they, get, they, they go and they begin to conspire against him to kill him. And that's something. I wonder if they ever saw it later on. I wonder if they ever realized. He said we would do that. And doggone it if we didn't go and do it. The only difference is that it, they didn't just, uh, they hung him on a cross, right? Not in the vineyard, but outside of it. And I think they would have left his body in a ditch if it hadn't been for Nicodemus. Adding more indignity to it. Jesus is masterful in this moment, in this showdown, this encounter with the Sanhedrin in the temple. I would like really uh, to be able to take the high road here and look at these uh, lumps in the Sanhedrin with a righteous sneer. I wouldn't have done that. The truth is, though, I made a mistake the first hundred times I read this text. And um, 
I read it like I was already with Jesus, like I was one of the disciples or one of the people following Jesus. But I don't think that's how I was intended to read it. I read it like, oh, I identify with Simon Peter or maybe James or John, right? But Jesus is telling the story so that those Pharisees, those people of the Sanhedrin, would actually hear themselves in the story. And I thought, hey, you know, maybe I need, I need to read myself into the story on the other side. Because we have this tendency to think of the Sanhedrin as villains, but they weren't. They really weren't. It's, uh, that's overly simplistic, right? It reduces them to this non-human thing. Oh, they were very human. They were highly re- regarded, highly educated, influential, important members of the community, respect- respected. They had this responsibility to ensure orthodoxy within the life of God's people. And they took it very seriously. And they pushed people out that they felt were going to lead people astray. They're not acting out of anything other than a zeal for the, what they understand is a zeal for the Lord. But somehow or another they lost track of what was really going on and became against God's kingdom rather than for it. And so I think that maybe what Jesus is trying to do is get us to ask this question about, by what authority does Jesus have to speak into my life? By what authority does Jesus have to speak into your life? Because that's what he's trying to do in the lives of the Sanhedrin. By what authority do you do this? And it's a simple answer. Either no authority at all, or the very claim is, he's the beloved son of God, the owner of the vineyard. And thus he has all authority to speak into my life. That's what I think this encounter is really all about. It'd be easy to lump this Sanhedrin into like the villains of a spaghetti western, but it doesn't fit because it's not who they were. We can't simply write them off. Jesus had every intention of those folks, maybe even his disciples, to see themselves as the tenants of the vineyard. Because sooner or later, when the responsibility was taken away from the tenants, it was given to the disciples to lead and nurture God's people. And now it's given to us, right? We have that same responsibility. And so the question then comes about the authority of Jesus in our own lives. What authority does Jesus have in your life? What authority have you given him? In the end, I think that's what this parable, this encounter of the temple, is one that makes us deal with how much of us we have submitted to Christ's authority, not as a guide or a teacher or some moral idea, but rather as this claim that he is the very beloved son of God. And out of that, he speaks in our lives, which means that our lives given under, submitted to his authority, then take on a different shape. So I'd like to leave you with a couple of questions, if I, if I may. Do with them what you will. Have you recognized Jesus' authority in your life? Are there places in your life where you've rejected Jesus' authority? And if so, what are you going to do about it? Let me pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, I ask that you be with us and help us as we wrestle with what it means to be human and what it means to be called to love you with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength and our neighbor as ourselves. Help us, Lord, as we understand what it means to live by grace and yet submit ourselves to the authority of Jesus and the authority of your word in our lives. Lord, help us to do those things. 
to do it with joy and to recognize your depth of love for us. Lord, I thank you for the chance that we have to look at Jesus. I pray that he would be and always will be the cornerstone of our lives and of this church. I ask this in the powerful and the awesome name of Jesus. Amen.